If you have your Bible, you're going to need it this morning. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Um, it's good to see all of you this morning. I'm glad to be um, serving Al and Corey and David um, preaching this morning as they went uh, this past week to their retreat and they planned for us. Um, just before I begin, I just if you're not praying for your pastors, I would highly encourage you to do that. Because preparing for a sermon is different than a public speech. It's not a public speech, even though it's made in the public. Uh, preparing for a sermon and caring for people is a spiritual endeavor that the Lord specifically calls people to do. And it's not an easy task. It's not an easy task. You wake up in the morning and you don't want to do it. You know, and there are days when you really want to do it. You feel filled with the Holy Spirit and you feel like you can save the world, but you really can't. You know, things fall apart. So I would encourage you to pray for your pastors. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your care and your love for us. Lord, what we are not, I pray that you would make us. What we have not, I pray that you would give us. And what we know not, I pray that you would teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The aim of this morning's sermon is really simple. It's the aim that Paul endeavored when he was writing this letter from a prison cell in Rome uh, to encourage the church at Colossae. And it was literally to present Christ to the church. There's really nothing else to this sermon except that. And that is my aim this morning. I've often told people that when we're looking at Jesus and when we're looking at the accounts of the scripture, we're not looking at Jesus and friends' story tales. We're not looking at a Jesus Christ fan club that if a film were made, we could probably sing along to Jesus and friends. Jesus shares his Lunchables. We're not looking at Jesus and dumbing him down when we come to the Bible. There's no eating popcorn to Jesus' life. Either you will love him or you will hate him. And it's no surprise that on Jesus' first sermon, the people tried to kill him. They tried to throw him off of this, the cliff of the city that 
was built there. Paul was a murderer before he came to know Christ. And we see that in Acts chapter 7. The fact that he is writing from a prison cell to a church that he had never met before in his life, and he's taking this time to engage them, shows just the complete transformation, the 180 degree turn from the life where he breathed out threats against the church. Luke records it. To now a caring individual, not a morally better individual, although that was a result of the transformation of his life, but he cares for these people. I don't know why there's bass in my mind. So he writes to this church at Colossae, which is a lot more than 100 miles east of where he is currently. And he's writing to them because he deeply cares about them. In fact, if you look in chapter 2, if you go on reading in Colossians, in chapter 2, you'll see that he says that he struggled for them. And he struggled for them and the church at Laodicea, which was just a little west of Colossae. He struggled for them. He agonized for them. And he's writing to them because there's something happening in the church that he heard by way of a pastor named Epaphras. Now, if you look over at Acts chapter 19, verse 10, you'll see that Luke records that Paul preached and all of the residents of Asia heard the gospel. They heard the word of the Lord. Now, that's a huge deal. There was no social media back then. There was no television amplification but all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And, and most people believe that the pastor that planted this church, Epaphras, was there, came to know Christ, and went back to share in his city the good news of what Jesus had done. So he plants a church, Epaphras plants a church, there's trouble brewing inside of the church, trouble coming outside of the church. And so Paul decides to go ahead and write this letter. In Acts chapter 28, or 20, verse 28, Paul gives this uh, charge to the elders at Ephesus, which is 100 miles east or west of Colossae. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, so that's outside coming in, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Now that's internal. So if the first one, the fierce wolves coming in are external, this is also internal. And he says it's to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And it's so, it's so, it wouldn't be long until after, after this charge that you would see trouble brewing in the horizon of the church, especially at Colossae. Over the past few weeks we've been going through Genesis and we've been going through these accounts and we've been looking at them at Adam, at Seth, at Noah... And I'd like to bring to your attention this morning, there is something remarkably similar between what was going on in Genesis and what is going on at Colossae. Namely, that there is an enemy, Satan, who is at work, and he has been at work from the beginning 
to go ahead and undermine the gospel and to undermine the authoritative word of God. This is what Paul labored for in order to see that this church would be presented mature in Christ. He says that in chapter 1, and he, he continues to say that. You read all of his letters, this is his aim. Where Satan goes in the garden is the meeting place between the Lord and his people, namely the garden. Where Satan goes to undermine the word of God, just like he did in the garden, here is the meeting place between the Lord and his people, except it's separated by thousands of years, and now it's in a city called Colossae. And it's no different today. I mean, you look at the, the, the television, and you look at... Oh, do we use television still? Yeah. Uh, we look at television, we look at the internet, and we see Amazon's bookshelves and Barnes & Noble's bookshelves lined with uh, people that claim to have had visions of God or visions in, from heaven where the Word of God is being undermined in our culture today. And the basis that we have for our lives lies right here. And so this is what Paul was laboring for in order to present the people mature before the Lord. Satan will always try to undermine the authoritative word of God, and this was the trouble here at Colossae. There were people that were creeping into the church and that had already crept into the church that had claimed to have visions, and they taught, and they made disciples, and they undermined the word, the authoritative teaching of the Bible, so that people began to be drawn and enticed by these visions. Now, today we may not have people claiming to have visions. Maybe we have some, right? But anything that challenges the preeminence of Christ will always try to undermine the Word of God. And you, you can replace it with visions. You can replace it with cars. You can replace it with your job. You can replace it with all the good things in life, right? We can replace it with all the things that we love to do. But when it challenges the supremacy of Christ, then that becomes God and Jesus gets demoted and ultimately we are not giving glory to the Lord. And this is Satan's aim. More church programs, more planning retreats, more of this and more of that, more potlucks, anything but the word of God. And so this morning, what I'd like to do, like I said just a few moments ago, is to turn your attention to Jesus, which is what Paul does in response to what is happening here at the Church of Colossae. So look with me now in verse 15. I've divided the sermon into two sections. It's really simple. If you looked at the Palm Vista Informed, it said, the preeminence of Jesus, our Creator and our Savior. It's really simple. That's the, that's the outline. And uh, Matthew Henry, an uh, old commentator, I, I took his uh, structure, so I, I don't think he'll mind. He lived around the 1800s, so <laughs> I don't think he'll mind if I borrow his structure. Thanks, Matt. Um, but let's look at verse 15, Jesus, our creator. This is what Paul is doing to address the problem at Colossae. Verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Not much can be fully known about the heresy that was going on in the church of Colossae, but a few things that we know from both history and from what Paul tells us here in the book of Colossians. Number one, there were people that were 
believing that between God and between man, there was huge expanse, a huge space, and there needed to be mediators. So they started having these visions in order to get closer to God. Jesus was then at that point demoted from being God to being a created being. And so he was just one in the Justice League of superheroes, angels, that people prayed to and asked for help in order to reach God. But Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. And what that means is that he is not just some good guru, good teacher that eventually became God and had some spirituality to him. He is not just a revelation of, of goodness. He is, a, uh, he is God in the flesh. He is God who had put on skin and bones and the things that he made, now he enters into that. And reveals himself to the world that he made. Jesus manifested God. But we shouldn't get so tripped up on these words. Most people will say, well, I I believe that. You know, I believe that he he revealed God and all that. But Paul is saying, he is God. So when you look at him, when people encountered him, when the woman at the well encountered Jesus, she wasn't encountering just another teacher from Galilee. When we read our Bibles, we're not just encountering just another carpenter. We are encountering God. He is the image of the invisible God. And you see the humility of God as he reveals himself to the creation that he made, willingly getting personal. If Adam was made in the image of God, that, image, that God that Adam was made in was Jesus. The revelation of God is expressly seen in the person and work of Christ. Nowhere else. Jesus was not just some created being. Most Jehovah's Witnesses will say, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And they'll say, well, look, God created Jesus and then Jesus created all things. But Paul says, no. Paul says, He is God. He visibly reveals God because He is God. For by Him all things were created. And so some people would say, okay, well, all things, so God created Jesus and then Jesus created the all things, right? But that would contradict what Paul is saying here. Jesus did not just, was not created. Jesus is the one that created the all things. And if Jesus is in the all things, then that contradicts itself. If you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, so when they knock on your door at unreasonable hours in the morning, and they want to tell you about this false God called Jesus in their own heads, you tell them about the real Jesus. And you say, well, the Bible tells me that Jesus created all things. Why does Paul do this? He does this in order to establish the supremacy of Christ. He does this to establish the, the preeminence of Christ. And he says, all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. When the Colossians prayed and asked God for help, 
they looked to angels and they looked to all of these intermediary forces. Today, we might, we might not encounter that so much, but just look across the street. We have in the Catholic Church where people pray to saints. This would be comparable, right? When Paul says what he's saying here, he is establishing the fact that Jesus is not just some angel. You can't put him in the same category. Jesus outclasses angels because he made them. Jesus outclasses all things, every single person in the history of the world, in all of creation. He outclasses everything because he made them. And it's no wonder that we begin to see the humility of Jesus when he washes his disciples' feet. He is the one taking off his robe and he's getting down and he's washing their feet. That's crazy because that's the creator. It should be the other way around. They should be washing his feet. We should be washing his feet. But Jesus gets down and he washes their feet. I had a conversation yesterday with a co-worker who started asking me about, our, uh, about Christianity and the differences between Christianity and other religions just because he wanted to get to know some things about religion. And as we're fixing iPhones, um, I work fixing iPhones, as we're fixing iPhones, I said, you know, the crazy thing about Christianity is that, and what separates it from all other religions, is that every single other religion, whether it's moralism, whether it's atheism, whether it's agnosticism, whether it's whatever you want to call it, will have you working your way up to God. And he goes, well, Buddhism doesn't. And I said, well, Buddhism does. There is a God in Buddhism. He goes, no, there isn't. And I said, yes, you are. You are that God. You look into yourself. You reach in. Right? For some people, it's follow your heart. Jesus comes down, puts on skin and bones in order to save his people, the people that rebelled against him. And I said, you know, Matt, the truth is, is that we're fixing these iPhones that Apple has made, right? But it would be like uh, Steve Jobs becoming the iPhone and in turn saving Every single iPhone as an iPhone. And he's like, oh, that's weird. (laughs) But that's what Jesus did. And that's what sets him apart from every other religion in the world. He is before all things. In verse 17, Paul says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is Paul's way of talking about Jesus' eternity. When Paul says he is before all things, before everything was made, before everything was made, Jesus was. John eight fifty eight, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Before Abraham was, I am. You tell your friends that you literally believe that physically right now there is a God in heaven. His name is Jesus. And he loves you and he cares about you. And that'll blow their brains. Like, what? You believe in a God that physically exists right now? Physically, flesh and blood? Yes, I do. And that's what Paul does believe. In him, all things hold together. Every supernova, 
every black hole, every star that's bigger than our sun, every galaxy, every single part of creation, including your own body, God holds together. If you're sitting here in one piece, it's because Jesus is holding you together right now. If your meal does not fall apart this afternoon, it's because Jesus is holding that together. There is no rogue molecule in the entirety of creation. Everything is held together by Jesus' power. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 1. Every single thing. If your spine hurts, Jesus is still holding it together. If you have allergies this morning... Jesus is still holding you together. If your relationship is good and your marriage is good, Jesus is holding it together. There is not one thing in the the entire universe that is out of alignment under the authority of the Creator, Jesus Christ. That includes your jobs. And that includes even the worship this morning. And so he is before all things and all things hold together. That includes 1.5 quintillion tons of water in this world. That's 15 trillion trillions. If you did the math, your head would explode, right? And Jesus can put it back together because he holds all things together. But there is nothing in the entirety of creation that is beyond the power of Jesus. So let me challenge you this morning as you're reading through the Gospels, as you're reading through Genesis and we're looking and we're pointing to a Savior from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Old Testament points to Jesus. New Testament looks back to Jesus and glorifies Him. The whole Bible glorifies Him. But when you read the accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't for one second demote Jesus from the supremacy that He should hold. When he speaks to the waves and he says, be still, that is the creator speaking to his creation. When he distributes the loaves of bread to the 5,000 and to the 4,000, that is the Lord giving bread the same way he did to the Israelites in the wilderness. Don't for one second demote Jesus and pass him by like he's another stranger you saw on the street. Jesus is not meant to be demoted. He holds supremacy. And most people don't see that. In fact, 99% of the world doesn't see that. But he holds all things together. This is not the stuff. So you look at the book of Colossians and you see that Paul is writing to these people. He's not here to give an exposition of theology so that they would walk away as theological fatheads and affirm truth. Well, that's true. Well, that's true. Well, that's true. What good is truth if it doesn't sink deeply into our souls? If it doesn't change us? We can affirm truth all that we want. For these guys, they were going after visions. But for us, we may not be going after visions, but anything that challenges the supremacy of Christ in our life, whether it's our schedules or our jobs, we'll try to work to undermine the authority of Christ in our lives. And we can affirm the truths all day. But if we don't stop and think and love the Lord with all of our hearts, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, the things that we do, with all of our soul, what good is it going to be? 
And this is the challenge that Paul is presenting to the Colossians in order to encourage them. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we go from a cosmic view of Jesus now to a more zoomed-in view of Jesus as our mediator. Verse 18, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Every pastor, every teacher, if you are a Sunday school teacher, if you are a children's ministry leader teacher, if you are a small group teacher, whatever office you hold in the life of the church, just know this, that the one who holds the supreme office in the life of the church, you and me, is Jesus. Who's the boss? Jesus. And so we have Paul saying, in the church at Colossae, Jesus is the preeminent office holder in that church. In fact, Epaphras, who has delivered the gospel to you, now serves under the Lord Jesus because he is the head of the church. If you, the, the, the analogy, you know, we hear this, you know, the husband is the head of the wife and Christ is the head of the church. When we hear this analogy, what, what it's really saying, what Paul is really saying is that If your head is pointed in the right direction, everything else is going to follow. So if you're sitting in a restaurant, but you think that you're in in, in Greece dancing and having the time of your life and someone's passing by you, you'd be tempted to think there's something wrong with that person, right? They're sitting here right in front of you, but they're really in Greece. You'd say, well, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with the head. If you were thinking that you were writing, but you're really just looking out of the window, someone would be tempted to say, there's something wrong with you. But here, the head is Jesus. The head of the body is Jesus. And if Jesus is leading the way, then it's expected that the church is supposed to follow suit. We say that we are Jesus' hands and feet, right? But we're more than that. We are the body of Christ. That means every single person has something to contribute to the life of the church as they follow Jesus the head, not their own inflated imaginations, which was happening here at Colossae. So any vision that we may have for the church, any agendas that we may have for the life of the church, ultimately has to fall under the headship of Christ. And we've seen a lot of people, sadly enough, in our American culture where they think that they're the head of the church. And so they build millions and millions and millions of followers behind them so that ultimately their empire rises and falls on them. The problem is, is that they can't hold all things together because they can't even hold their own life together. And even if they did, they would still die. Here, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, He is the only one to be raised by his own power, as Matthew Henry puts it. He's not the first to be raised from the dead, but he is the first to be raised by his own power. I don't, uh, I give my life that I might take it back again, he says in John chapter 10. That in everything he might be preeminent, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So let's not get it confused between the deity and the humanity of Christ. He is both in one person. He is fully God, fully man in one person. 
He is creator and he is the mediator between God and man. And in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So, the reconciliation that occurred between God and man happened through Jesus. You cannot save yourself. You can't stand before God and hope to wink your way into his good grace. It's impossible. God is holy. And if there is no Savior that you're trusting in except Jesus, you're hopeless. We are hopeless. The reality is that because of what happened in the garden, where man decided that he was going to be God and determine what was right and what was wrong, there was a breakdown in the relationship where the where in the undermining of the authority of the word of God, Adam and Eve's relationship was broken, and consequently that was broken between God and them. And ever since then, if we look at the world today, we will see the problem between marriages and the problem between people and the problem between everything in the world is sin. And there is no hope apart from Jesus. And so if you think that at the end of your life, that you've done enough good things and you've done X, Y, and Z and you would never cheated on your taxes, you never cheated in your relationships, you've never cut someone off on the palmetto, you've never run a red light, you never had a traffic ticket and you were just the sweetest person in the world. Even the sweetest person needs a savior. Even the sweetest person needs a savior. God is not a God of moralism. The gospel transforms people making them go from death to life. And as a result, through our sanctification, as the Lord conforms us more and more to Christ, we morally adjust. God morally changes us so that now it's God that determines what's right and wrong, not us. And we need a Savior. You and me both, we need a Savior. So how do we apply this to us today? The Colossians needed a savior. But Jesus is not just some outdated application point. Jesus, we need Jesus today. So three application points as we close. Number one, be sure to make it your aim to invest in the spiritual development of your brothers and sisters. And I say that because if you look at the letter to the Colossians, Paul is writing to a people he doesn't even know and he's taking spiritual ownership of their development. Paul, you should be conserving your energy because you're about to die and be beheaded. So why are you writing this letter to people that you don't know, that you don't know if they're ever going to respond to you? Sometimes when you're teaching and you're investing in others, you may not even see the results. And for some of us, the results is what we crave. We crave the results. We want to see the fruit of our labor, and sometimes we get down about it. We do it at work. We do everything that we can to invest in the life of someone, and we hope to see results. The gospel frees us from that craving because it leaves the results to God. So why not invest in people? Why not invest in the life of your brothers and sisters who are blood-bought by the Lord Jesus. 
Application number two, Jesus is the only way to God. Uh, earlier this year, I um, met with Al and we, we spoke about this. I, I, I had just been thinking, I was at a Starbucks and I was just thinking about the drive through You know, you've heard Al say it. I hate drive throughs I, I, I go through them sometimes, but I hate drive I get why they're convenient. I worked for a drive through but what is sacrificed in a drive-thru is the personal relationship that you build between the person that's taking your order and you. And sadly enough, what we've done is we've treated the Lord, I've done this so many times, that we treat the Lord as though He were a drive through station so that you go into His presence with your Bible and you do all the good things, all the right things, all the spiritual things, and you hope Lord, give me my food in five minutes and I'm out. I'm ready for the day. When, when I say that Jesus is the only way to God, he is your savior. And there's no amount of good things that you can do to get into his good graces, which means you need to stop. We need to stop and, and look to Jesus for who he truly is. He is the only way to God. You can't go to church enough and expect that God will accept you. Because he won't. He won't, ex- he won't accept me or you. But he does accept his son. And by virtue of his son, he accepts you and me. The final application has to do with our thinking biblically. These guys in, Coloss- in, in the city of Colossae were having these visions. And they were drawing people away. But for us today more than likely, it's probably nominalism. It's more just the taking the Lord for granted and taking this for granted so that we say, yeah, I get it. I get it. It's Bible stuff. If Jesus is our example and we see him going through the roughest times of his life, dealing with it biblically, with scripture after scripture after scripture, and he is our example, how much more do we need to have our brains filled with God's word? Epaphras labored hard for three cities, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. They were like the tri-cities region. And there were churches planted there. And there were people that were being taken away from the Lord because the word of God was being undermined. Is the word of God being undermined in your life today? Are you undermining the word of God by saying a few verses, maybe at the beginning of the week, going to church on Sunday, and then leaving this to collect dust? Sometimes this has more dust than dust itself. Don't undermine the word of God. This is your life. This is your life. You can eat, you can drink, but ultimately, this is where your life is. And and Paul says that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Are we thinking biblically? The danger of not thinking biblically is that we will fall away and we will begin to drift. And then next thing you know, 
one Sunday that we miss will turn into two Sundays that we miss. And then ultimately, and I have friends and you have friends. We know people that have done this. They're not walking with the Lord anymore. What happened? You can trace that line all the way down to the root. And the root is the undermining of the word of God. The same thing that Satan did with Eve and Adam. He questioned the word of God. Are you undermining this? Don't do it. Hold the line. So, make it your aim to invest in others, the way Paul did with the Colossians. Remember, Jesus is the only way to God, and he came to save you, and he knows your name. He knows exactly who you are. And number three, think biblically. Jesus is our creator, and he is our mediator. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we ask now that you would take my words and whatever was not profitable, we pray that you would cause it to fall away. But I do pray that your word would sink deeply into our hearts. Take this now, we ask, and make it so in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's our hope. Our hope is that what he began in us, he will complete in us. So I want us to, to confess that hope to the Lord. I want us to, to cry out to him that we would say, Lord, you truly are our everything. Lord, you truly are the only way by which we come to the Father. Thank you for that way. And Lord, help us. Help us now that we might stand on his word, his word alone, with confidence that what God began in us he will complete in us. Let's stand and let's, let's worship the Lord in song, Zeke, as we sing that in faith, that what he began, he will complete. And uh, let's pursue the Lord using this means of grace, singing this truth. Completely done.
in here a little and wants us to press in. So here's what I feel like the Lord might be leading us to do. Here's the phrase. In whom or in what do you have confidence right now? I think this is the idea of the preeminence of Christ for us. Is is He the one in whom you have confidence? I don't know if that makes sense, but you know, as you're looking at your life, as you're looking at your future, something is number one. You've got all your money riding on one horse. I mean, you are trusting this. For some of you, it may be your ability. For some of you, it may be your money. I don't know what it might be. But where is your confidence this morning? For many of us, it's shaken, right? We, we sing that lyric, what if I fail again? Right? We're all thinking of something, aren't we? I believe what the Lord wants to minister to us in grace is that if you're His, if He's called you, if He's saved you, He has you. David said, he has you. He holds you together. He holds it together when you're losing it. Or others around you are losing it. And that he's saying, put your confidence fully in me. We grow in that, right? So we're growing in that. So I want to pray for you. And I want to sing that verse again, that the confidence. And, and let the Spirit of God minister his word in Colossians 1, 15 to 20 by His Spirit, that you might just grow another step toward God and saying, Lord, you are preeminent, but I want that functionally to be true in my life. I have confidence in you, but functionally I want to have even more and less in myself. Less in myself. Let me pray for you. Lord God, we all stand before you as those who need to grow in the preeminence of Christ. Lord, we all stand before you We're revealed that our confidence isn't fully in you when anxiety levels rise, when things don't go our way, when fear rises, when there's trouble on the horizon. Lord, we're like, we're your children. Help us, Daddy. Help us, Father. 
we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, we, we come to you now as we sing this verse, the chorus. Lord, we're just praying together through song. Lord, we trust you. Grow us, mature us right now by your spirit, through your word, that our lives would be based on your word. You are preeminent. You are the only way. That's our hope. So let's sing that verse again. desert, huddled in the barren desert, about to go into the promised land. It's recorded in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. And I want to pronounce that blessing in the name of the Lord Jesus, because Jesus is preeminent, because our trust is in Him and in His Word. Amen? So receive this. Dear church, dear believer, the Lord bless you and keep you, hold you together. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in Jesus Christ, the one who holds it all together, the preeminent one. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. If you're a first-time guest, love to say hi to you right through these doors.